0: During a pond crossing, it's like just getting dark for an airfield that I've never landed at before. Weather almost down to minimums and like low on fuel after hitting the tanker for the last time. I had a problem when we were just starting to go through the weather. I got a warning for hydraulic malfunction that basically took away the brakes.
1: This is Up in the Air, a show about travel adventures, frequent flying, and the unique experiences we have along the way. I'm Ian Agrimis, and in this episode, you'll hear from Peter Lind about what it was like to realize a childhood dream of flying fighter jets in the US Air Force. When we're young, we tend to have somewhat unrealistic goals of what we want to be when we grow up. I know I wanted to be a firefighter, and astronaut may have been on the table at one point as well. But as we grow up, these occupational aspirations lose appeal, and in many cases, become unrealistic. Unless you're like Peter Lind. From a young age, he knew he wanted to fly fighter jets, and less than 20 years after making this realization, he made it happen. Today, Peter is a captain of the F-15 Strike Eagle and has served in the Middle East flying complex air superiority missions keeping US troops safe in the air and on the ground. If you're anything like me, the movie Top Gun might be your only source of information on the life of a fighter pilot. So I figured it would be best to start with that. Were you one of those guys who just saw Top Gun and then was like, I should do that? No. So my grandfather
0: and his brother were both fighter pilots in Korea. And then my dad was in the military and my cousin graduated from the Air Force Academy in 2000. So growing up, you'd go to air shows or... Uh, yeah. watch Top Gun, other stuff like that. And it was always just the military service background and wanting to fly. It's just what I always wanted to do. I think I was like seven years old when I told my parents that I wanted nice, to be a fighter nice.
1: pilot. <laughs> seven years old. That's crazy. You know, when you're seven years old, people want to do a lot of things. Everybody wants to be an astronaut, fireman. I mean, fighter pilots probably fairly common. I mean, do you think your parents like kind of rolled their eyes and said whatever, or think they were like, all right.
0: I think they thought it was cool uh, and that it'd be a good thing to aspire to or go after. But no, I don't know how seriously they treated it.
1: When did you get your pilot's license?
0: Started working on it when I was 16. And I ended up getting my private pilot's license just before going to college. So I would have been, I guess, 18 at the time.
1: You went to the Air Force Academy, right?
0: Yes. And there are multiple ways to do that if you want to be a military pilot. As far as getting some of your civilian credentials and going through officer candidate school or OTS, the big thing there would be, I guess, if you got your private or your commercial or any of your ratings and then decided that you did want to fly in the military, there's that route. And then also ROTC, where you'd go to a a university that offered that. uh, And then if you performed well, you could get picked up for a pilot slot out of there to get then go through the training. And then the third option is also the Air Force Academy. When I was going through, it was like 400 plus slots out of each academy class generally would go on and fly.
1: Hmm. So you go through all this training and schooling and then you're know you you're flying all sorts of trainer aircraft, I assume, uh, but then you you start flying the big boy stuff. So after you graduate, what was the journey from Air Force Academy graduation to where you are now, which is fighter pilot.
0: I was a weirdo. So after the Academy, I ended up as a a Marshall Scholar. So it was me and uh, about 40 other individuals from other universities across the US, but I did post-grad work in the UK. So I did a PhD in international relations at the University of St. Andrews up in Scotland. Ended up being Hmm. just a little over three years of that. And then I went through the pilot training pipeline so how that works is you spend a couple months uh, going through IFT, which is like an initial flight training. And so for there, you start with ground academics, just overall, and then fly a prop single engine. It's a Diamond uh, DA-20, and you end up soloing in that. And that's just an mm-hmm. overall to have the uh, hands or ability to then go through a flight training in the Air Force. So post that... Then you go to UPT. So we have a number of bases uh, in Texas and Oklahoma primarily. And then we used to have a program down in Florida. And then there's also a base in Mississippi. And what that's broken into is you have academics for multiple months. And then you go into the T6, which is uh, another prop plane, but uh, low wing. And then that also has uh, ejection seats and is a really cool plane. Mm-hmm. So you do that for the first part, and then you either track into helicopters uh, or heavies, which would go to the T-1, and then you also have more the fighter-bomber track that would go to the T-38.
1: So heavies are like cargo aircraft?
0: Yeah, yeah. So after academics and then the T-6 phase, then they kind of track select from there.
1: How do you choose or did they choose for you?
0: So you put down what you'd like, and then part of it is class ranking, and then also leadership's determination of where they think you should be. So a lot goes Mm. into it as far as officership and then also desires, because a lot of people really want to fly like a C-17 or a cargo plane travel all around the world on those.
1: Mm. Uh, Yeah, sure.
0: Other people really want bombers. And then there's also definitely a group of people that wanted to fly helicopters.
1: Yeah, right. So obviously, Since you were seven, you wanted to fly a fighter jet, so the choice was pretty clear for you. But was there something, if you hadn't uh, been eligible for that or something, was there another aircraft type you were interested in?
0: For me, it was, and this is actually kind of a cool segue on that end. One of our pilot training bases is uh, called NJEP. So we call pilot training UPT, for undergraduate pilot training. But if you go to NJEP, it's run by NATO. So you have Hmm. pilots as far as instructors, as well as students that are from across NATO countries. Other part of that program is that everyone goes from T-6s to T-38s.
1: That's the jet, the trainer, right? Yeah,
0: yeah. And uh, if anyone has watched Top Gun, the bad aircraft, that is uh, an F-5 or T-38. So that's that jet. the trainer
1: is that when they're like that opening scene right where and they're like oh the migs are following us but they're not at all are they no
0: yeah those would be f5s or the t38 kind of uh souped up for that so no yeah that would be our trainers and those are used uh, as fighters by countries across the world even today
1: and those are supersonic yes they
0: can go above the mock
1: so what was the first time that you flew above the speed of sound like
0: you can't tell in the jet, like you can read the number, mm, but I remember right, it was in pilot training where you actually have a ride where you go up and do that. I'm sure it makes a big noise on the ground, but you kind of just watch it tick up. You're like, oh, okay, that was it.
1: <laughs> okay, so relatively uneventful when you're actually in the air. Yeah. But you obviously graduated from that. So when you start flying the F-15, walk me through the first time that you flew that and and, and actually in the, the front seat. Not just like rode in one.
0: No, it was unreal.
1: Obviously it'd been a goal of yours for so long. To have that realized must've been incredible. Not a lot of people are fighter pilots. No,
0: no. And that that's definitely some of the emotion that goes through. It's like, wow, I'm actually doing it. And they uh, they trust you and put enough training there that you're like able to do that. It was definitely amazing. But at the same time, when you get there, all of that training and all of those thoughts—you're doing something every second from when you step out to the jet. Sure. So it's definitely one of those things where you kind of look back or take a few seconds during every flight where you look outside and you're like, "Wow, I'm actually—I'm
1: actually flying this thing. Yeah, unreal. Yeah, a, a incredible experience. I, I'm sure. And and like you said, obviously you're preoccupied with with the task at hand, which is, I'm sure, quite complicated and very nuanced. But fighter. Pilots are are become are somewhat a, a dying breed. I mean, obviously, we use uh, drones for a lot of air combat missions that were previously flown by people. So, what is the most common mission for a manned fighter pilot in today's world? Is it intimidation or what?
0: This is all my opinion, of course. Yeah, but I think across the globe, the fighter pilots are still definitely part of the. Mixon will continue to be. I would guess uh, that it'll be quite some time before completely out if technology does develop to that point. The primary role is when you need people to be in that moment and overhead while watching out for Americans on the ground or otherwise. As far as intimidation, I think it just comes down to what we have available and needing people overhead. So the Jets, I mean, the F-15, it first flew like decades ago, uh, obviously, mm-hmm. and Boeing is still uh, building new ones. So I, I think it'll be oh, wow. quite some time before the fighter pilot is gone. That being said, mm-hmm. uh, the jets are getting more expensive or advanced, yeah. and there are just fewer of them. So I think that's translating yeah. big time into the commercial airline industry of like in the 60s, probably 80, 90% had military background, and now they don't. Mm. It's just getting fewer and fewer and probably will be into the future
1: yeah yeah backing up a little bit when you're deployed you do a lot of things and some of those things are things you can't talk about you you've got a pretty capable machine up there lots of uh weapons systems and things like that so you have to practice using them Uh, Before you show up over there, at least I assume. So what are some of the training exercises that you do run through and how is it firing like a live missile for the first time from a plane? I just can't imagine what that would be like.
0: Yeah, no, I mean, the training is very intense and in-depth and uh, we're gone a lot, obviously doing training. So there you do have the opportunity to do those things. And it is really cool capstone and way to learn those things. The cool thing about the Strike Eagle is that uh, rather than the F-15C, mainly air-to-air, you have both the air-to-air and air-to-ground element. Mm. That adds in a whole bunch of other like elements that we have to train to and prep for. So, shooting a, a missile for the first time or practicing dropping a bomb, it's definitely right. something that you have to train for regularly and prepare for any potential.
1: No kidding. Uh, certainly... Wouldn't come naturally to me, I'll say that. I read this book once called Punching Out. Have you heard of it? I have not heard of that book, no. So it's basically a collection of stories from from pilots who've who've had to eject from their various aircraft. There was one story that really stood out to me, this pilot named Jeff Vickers, and he took a radio intercept officer up for a flight in the F-14. And I guess they were they were inverted and the guy in the back didn't know what to do with his hands, and so he accidentally pulled the eject lever in between his legs at the moment that they went into negative G. He survived, but um, just a, just an insane uh, sequence of events, I'm sure, for the pilot. What's your preparation process for ejection? It's obviously not something that you hope to do, but um, you need to be aware of how it all works and, and such. Yes,
0: yeah. So there's regular training on that uh, from the very beginning as soon as you get into an ejection seat aircraft. So even that uh, T-6 element uh, for even what to do once you get under canopy and you're even in the parachute. It's, in my opinion, a really nice thing to have as far as if something does go wrong with the aircraft that (laughs) you kind of have that last ability in order to get out.
1: Yeah, it's uh, definitely a last resort that most most pilots don't have. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Obviously it's not something that happens very often and that's a good thing, but a lot of training regularly as far as what to do with your body, like getting in a good uh, position. And like you mentioned, that mm-hmm. guy that just had to <laughs> bail out because someone pulled the lever, Yeah, that would be super, very iffy. And the people that happen in that position, it can really mess up your back. I'd say you'll probably be yeah. uh, an inch or two shorter and probably have a, uh, back problems at the very least
1: yeah i've heard that it it makes you like two inches shorter at least initially which is crazy to think about so you were recently deployed you we were talking about that just at the beginning to a an undisclosed location in the centcom area and um, somewhere in the middle east so you just returned home in june what's the process like for getting your plane over there i mean i assume you just fly it right
0: Yeah. So that's super cool. Yeah, We refer to them as like a pond crossings. Short answer is that you take off and have different locations that you go to uh, along the way, but you get uh, drugged by a tanker. So Uh, a lot of people (laughs) discuss this and that you're for hours and hours, you could be in the weather crossing uh, oceans and making sure that you have enough fuel at all times to make it somewhere if you absolutely needed to. So if for whatever reason, the like the boom broke, or there was no way to take any more gas. It's super long and coordinated and very exact process. It's super cool.
1: It's not like you can just fly it Mach two or something the whole time to make it go faster because you run out of fuel uh, a lot quicker. I'm assuming so, and you don't have a bathroom. So I, although you can refuel, I mean how 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 I mean how long are these flights? Yeah, I mean, it
0: depends just from personal experience. Like, you could have many hours, like, probably up to 10, depending on where you're going, plus, uh, and yeah, it, it well, all depends, but that definitely turns into an issue, and there are a lot of funny stories about that. Care to share any? So, they give you, like, call them p- piddle packs, but basically just mm-hmm. having to go to the bathroom, and then also... A real thing is if you're going over oceans and the temperature of the water is really cold, you have to wear what we call poopy suits, which is basically like a dry suit. So uh, rubber and make sure that the air uh, or the water couldn't get in. And it only extends your ability to live in that water for not too much longer, but you wear that with the rest of your flying equipment. Wow if you ever had to go to the bathroom, you you would end up having to strip everything off. Uh, So if you are in an emergency type situation, that's where you get like super funny call signs and a really dirty cockpit.
1: (laughs) Oh my gosh, that's crazy. I have this segment that I do on the podcast called Explain That Graham." I think I mentioned it to you. And uh, you're not uh, one for the Instagram, but you know, we... I I do have access to your Facebook, which is not a luxury that that uh, listeners will have. But there's an awesome photo on there of you returning to to base uh, in, in from your most recent deployment. Your wife was greeting you on the tarmac. What what was that like to um, have that experience? I'm assuming that was your first deployment since you had been married. So it seemed like a real real Hollywood kind of moment.
0: Yeah, yeah, it was unreal, and I think across the military community, no matter what branch you're in. That's a huge moment, uh, every deployment, but, uh, probably also the first, as far as memories. And especially when you put uh, children into the mix, like, right. and they get older and can really understand, uh, what missing their loved one is like, uh, but when you first get back. It's just been so long that you count down the days as soon as you get on the deployment and kind of think about
1: mm-hmm. you
0: know what you're going to do, what you're going to eat when you get back, and then what that's going to be like.
1: Yeah, you start to get pretty excited. I'm sure.
0: Yeah, part of it's just uh, like absolute exhaustion, and then being ecstatic to see those people again.
1: Right. Right. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you look pretty excited hopping out of that plane, but um, yeah, I can only imagine how you must have felt after potentially 10 hours sitting in that seat, the long journey back home. You may not be able to, to speak to uh, some of these questions, but so on, on your most recent deployment, I mean, what what is your, what is your kind of typical day or, or week look like? I imagine you're kind of on call all the time. Is that right?
0: Yeah. So, I mean, I can talk you through a normal day at home and then a time over there, uh, but the big stuff for deployment, and I think most military members would be, same situation across the globe, but it's just nonstop as far as no weekends and the days all kind of blur into each other. So you have a set schedule and things rotate, but the big stuff is seven days a week, you're performing your regular duties, going up and flying, defending U.S. forces and our allies, and then doing your uh, ground duties. But super long days And uh, always there on the clock.
1: Yeah, yeah. What's a typical reason why why they have to, quote unquote, scramble the jets? Can you answer that? Or maybe not?
0: Yeah, it depends on where you are around the world. So like when I hear scramble, I'm thinking like quick reaction alert. So like the UK or different US bases, you'll see pictures online. So like if a bomber or some other aircraft was getting close to US airspace, that's where we would scramble and have people waiting to get out there.
1: I think we all have this perception of fighter jets and fighter pilots kind of doing this crazy stuff, flying upside down, shooting missiles at other planes, obviously air to air combat's a little less common these days, but to what degree is that stuff, you know, really happening or, you know, what is the kind of new role of somebody in your, your position, you know, in the, the, the theater of war?
0: Yeah. So no, that's super interesting. And, uh, I would say just from my personal opinion now, I thought that flying a fighter would be a lot of just kind of doing whatever you wanted, (laughs) rolling, inverting, turn, pull, fly low, go super fast. And it's a lot more of, I kind of joked that it was like flying, except you're doing so many other things like working multiple other radios while flying and then also working three Game Boys or three computers all at the same time. So what it turns into is a lot of having to think on your feet, a lot of data processing, talking, taking in information. And then nowadays it's a big thing of uh, just defending U.S. people and U.S. assets wherever they may be.
1: I mean, what does the defense look like? Is that just that kind of The presence and intimidation, or is that, you know, through the actual use of armaments? And I guess the answer could be both.
0: Yeah, I guess like uh, all of the above as far as close air support of friendly and coalition troops. So just being there and letting people know that we are there and then defending them uh, as necessary.
1: Sure. You kind of had that same idea of being a fighter pilot and. Uh, flying upside down, flying super fast. But I mean, you must still have to perform those those duties, if you will, at, at some point. And it, whether it be in training or on the battlefield. So there must be still some, some thrills to it.
0: Yep. And that's the big thing is if I was to put like one skill on fighter pilots in particular, I'd say it's like changes in line of sight. So like three dimensional movement and being able to sell changes in movement. So, hmm. turning at the exact right time, or maximizing your jet's capability and thinking three dimensionally
1: yeah, of course, and compared to like vast 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 majority of aircraft, just doing any sort of maneuver in a fighter jet is obvious it must be quite the experience, but i mean how how is it on your body because you pull you're pulling those heavy g's. Uh, all the time and I I know that has an effect you get those what do you call the like the jesles you kind of like chicken pox type thing or the the blood rushes to your extremities and kind of bursts and various other uh kind of side effects of of flying so quickly in those crazy maneuvers those are funny the jesles happens a lot when people go to the centrifuge so when they test
0: you up to certain g levels uh but yes it has a huge wear on your body as soon as you see older Fighter pilots, you can kind of tell when they get to a certain age and they're retired and they can't play golf because their back is that messed up. And that is a big thing for the community, like discussions of different physical exercises and other ways to strengthen your back and make sure that you're better long-term, but especially fighters that pull a lot of Gs. Uh, so the, the Strike Eagle is awesome. But as far as like when you look at older F-16 pilots and people that regularly are F-15C pilots when they're pulling Gs all the time uh, and continually, it is a huge wear on your body for sure.
1: Yeah. I, I've had one experience with formation flying. I was in a modified Learjet. It was, it's modified to shoot air to air footage. So I was sitting in the back shooting this kind of behind the scenes video. We were shooting a promo thing for Boeing with the new uh, 787 And I I mean, I have no idea what the G-forces actually were. I would say probably like three G's absolute max. Maybe that sounds crazy high for a Learjet. But it was actually so difficult for me to deal with just that amount of G that I I basically like fell asleep. I, I mean, I just couldn't handle it. I have a ton of respect for the training that you clearly go through to be able to tolerate. What is it? Six, seven, eight. Nine, I don't know.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's definitely like, well, you're wearing a G suit on that too, which I don't know if you've ever seen them. They're kind of like uh, chaps, but with <laughs> air that fills them. Yeah. And different jets have different setups as far as that goes. And then also different breathing mm. that you can do as far as like squeezing certain muscles and then the way that you inhale and exhale. Right. But yes, a huge issue because if you're not on it, you can definitely
1: pass out. Yeah. Have you had any close calls while you were learning or anything?
0: Uh, no, it's kind of weird. Probably like most athletic things where some days you're on it and other days you're not. So, mm-hmm. or better than others, I should say. So like if you're dehydrated and didn't sleep well the night before, probably not going to be able to as easily pull that many G's. So there's definitely times mm-hmm. that you feel it, uh, more than others, but no, luckily on my end.
1: Yeah, that's good. Uh, it's obviously not something you uh, want to play around with in a plane like that, or or any plane, really, I should say. When you're not flying the fighter jet, either you're flying as a passenger or you're flying something else, you must be so bored. Uh, I mean, how big is the temptation to, to have a little bit of fun?
0: Oh, that temptation is always hilarious, talking here on a, uh, a travel podcast as well, but I love international travel probably anyone to listening to this does as well and that's also a big yeah. part of the military community but yes if i'm flying in like a 737 or any other commercial airliner out there there's always that thought in the back of your mind like well if anything happened you know it's kind of probably like a a doctor on a flight like if someone has a heart attack right now like i've got this um, yeah yeah i think there's probably some some of that feeling definitely in there like, well, <laughs> if for whatever reason this happened and that happened, like they've got me yeah. and I bet, yeah. cause that's like a huge thing across the military and getting into the fighter world as well. Something that's always discussed all the time, uh, which is why you get those, uh, you know, Sully, Sullenberger or anyone down that line, yeah. the emergency procedures training, uh, both in the simulator and in the jet and like just regularly uh, discussed and trained to, I think Air Force pilots are in very high demand and recognized training, or recognize that that training is just exceptional across the board. Yeah. and hammered. So with that and that level of training, there's also just a high level of proficiency and just proud of your ability to to handle those situations.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, a lot of guys who used to, used to be in the Air Force and and then now fly commercially. I imagine the kind of straight and level nature of it must be a little bit hard to adjust to.
0: Yeah, I imagine it would be. I mean, going back to the body discussion of what we had, that would be probably one rationale. Everyone has to hang up their flight suit at some point. So then it's the discussion of where do you go and what do you do? And yes, I imagine, especially if you were in one of those commercial airlines where some of those planes, they they can land themselves and basically... Fly themselves right, with like right. auto throttle, auto this, auto that. For the T-38 trainer and everything, like right out of the gate for the Air Force, you're in relatively old aircraft with none of those things. In my opinion, that's an awesome way to train. Sure. Every minute of every hour you're on it, having to fly very precise maneuvers with very powerful aircraft. And I can't think of a better way to bring up your pilots.
1: Proficiency. Yeah, that's awesome. Obviously, an amazing skill set that not a lot of people have or or understand. I've taken one flying lesson and um, definitely opened my eyes to how much I don't know. But like you said, you touched on briefly, you do love to travel. And I'm sure when when you're not deployed and when there's an, a global pandemic, you are able to do that a lot. So what is your schedule like when you're not deployed and how much time do you have to travel freely or to enjoy your your own time off?
0: So that's one of the big things I think across the services uh, is the ability to travel and then get stationed overseas. So we have, you know, eighteen-year-olds and then all the way through in like Italy, Germany, the UK, Japan, Korea. There's a big emphasis on taking vacation and traveling and seeing the world and also those local communities that we interact in. In a lot of cases, living off base. So you have neighbors from that country and everything else and it can be really cool and lifelong experiences so you do have a lot of that time to travel as far as but when you are at home that was something that kind of is unique to the fighter pilot world as well as far as the attention to detail and debriefing everything to perfection Mm. the days are incredibly long you show up and start briefing and you can be like three upwards of four hours prior to when you even would be taking off and then you would land and then debrief that for four plus hours as well so right there you're looking at a 10 plus hour day regularly upwards of 12 to 14 right right just for one flight and then you also have kind of the standard stuff that most people do as far as people management, if you are in those roles. And then you also have email and regular admin that you have to do for your day job.
1: Everybody's got to to stay tight on email. (laughs) You
0: do have a lot of time as far as mission planning and then the physical element of regularly hitting the gym. And then Mm -hmm. obviously the flying, which is definitely physically trying.
1: Well, just focusing back on kind of using your personal time. You had mentioned that uh, when when we talked before this uh, about setting up this podcast that miles and points is a big thing in the in the community, obviously in the military community obviously you do have the opportunity to travel pretty widely. I I want to hear hear about what your your strategy is and what you use your miles and points for and uh which cards you have and all that. Let's let's kind of dive into that.
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's definitely an emphasis, I would say across the military as far as travel and being stationed abroad and just using the opportunities and resources that are around. So, there are several cards and companies that as far as the annual fee uh can be waived for military members. Uh so I you know That's so nice. That is so nice. Yeah yeah it's huge and for instance the amex platinum chase sapphire so basically when you sign up for those cards and then uh ask as far as the military goes and see what they they offer and i'm sure there are a lot of other cards they are highlighted by military members but it may not be emphasized enough as far as those resources out there and it is kind of fun mm-hmm. i guess prior to COVID, being in the amex lounges i'd kind of look around we would joke we could kind of spot the military members
1: Hmm. Uh, what are you looking for? <laughs> just a
0: standard haircut appearance. Their <laughs> bag is, sure. but it's just really cool to see families. You know, they're probably traveling back from Germany to try to see their family or coming back from deployment or this or that. And you can see them traveling through and using those opportunities. So it's, I think a really smart and cool thing that those companies do and something that military members should look into is really maximizing those that time abroad. Cause if you are in Japan, uh, and you have the availability like that makes it that much easier to see the rest of Asia uh, and really yeah. get out there. Americans can be really good about using those opportunities, and that's a real benefit of being in the military is uh, seeing the world and using those opportunities.
1: Yeah, that's really cool. Obviously, the value proposition of those cards goes up significantly if you if you're not on the hook for the annual fee. So that's awesome. Uh, what um, what are some of the Best ways you've used your miles or some of your favorite ways to use them? I may not be the best person to talk to about that. I've just been like uh, accruing them.
0: Obviously, mm-hmm. the number of the cents or dollars per point uh, and just maximizing those, you would have to, to take me through the best way to do that. But the way I've seen mm-hmm. them used a lot is just uh, airline flights. So transferring the points to Singapore Airlines or some other.
1: Right. All the the transfer partners. Yeah,
0: exactly. Especially when they give particular deals for a number of points and then just using that opportunity, particularly to upgrade and get
1: places uh, within the regions. You're kind of a special case because you have your own plane. By the way, does your plane have your name on it?
0: <laughs> it does. Oh, but uh, That is me... fucking
1: cool. <laughs> For sure. You have to send me a photo. I'll put I'll put it on your on the, the podcast page for, for this episode. That'd be
0: sick. I'll
1: have to. Awesome.
0: But the F-15E is really cool in that you have two people. So you have a pilot uh front and then a weapon system officer. Right. But it's not like the
1: top gun of that you fly with different people all the time. Mm, you don't just have your like standard wingman. Yeah,
0: exactly. And you don't fly the same jet all the time. But there, ah. there is
1: a jet out there with my name on it. At this point, Peter had to run a little early, you know, fighter pilot stuff. But a few weeks later, we were able to continue the conversation. I want to follow up on some of the things uh, that I thought we glossed over. And, and then a few things that just piqued my interest since our last conversation. And perhaps first and foremost, top of my list, what is your call sign? And what's the story behind it?
0: Uh, so it's Boone. Kind of like Daniel Boone, the same spelling. So that's the name that I would like go by at work. Generally, they're either a funny story or kind of making fun of either an event, uh, a name, or uh, maybe a personality trait. So mine, it's short. We had an Australian guy uh, in the squadron, and it was also a uh, support ride for our weapon school, which is kind of like our Top Gun but uh, it's short for uh, boondoggle, uh, so it's <laughs> like just a mess up of a ride or a flight.
1: What was the boondoggle, if you can say?
0: We took off. We were like number four in a four ship, and our mm-hmm. system. So like, um, we were in straight and like I was flying just straight and level, but it showed mm-hmm. we were climbing. So our, like the systems were messed up. So basically, we had to come back as an emergency through the weather and then land on someone's wing, which is kind of a cool part of fighters is that you're always together. So if something's wrong, like Mm. you can literally be right off their wing going through the weather or anything, just like a couple feet away, which I think is a huge difference between specifically fighters and other aircraft in the aviation industry is that you get really used to flying very close to other aircraft. Yeah, no And that's that's even a way that like for safety, you can get places because obviously like if they know their airspeed or whatever, and you're flying right next to them, uh, fly through the weather safely, or even like, you know, you're flying at a certain airspeed because that's their airspeed.
1: Yeah. Aside from the fact that, as you said before, you know, it takes obviously a lot of training to to flat out survive <laughs> fighting one of these planes, all the G-forces and stuff. How badly do you want to take your wife for a joyride?
0: Uh, really badly. Uh, that would be <laughs> awesome. And that's like one of the number one questions that a lot of people give you. What would it take to get a ride in that thing? <laughs> I've seen it in the movies, you know.
1: Yeah.
0: It's allowed, right? But I think the closest thing you can get is what they call a spouse's taxi. So mm. every once in a while in the squadron, you can Sometimes it works out really well where like, I actually got to taxi my wife, which is pretty full up, but you get to like go out taxi and then do like kind of a pre takeoff where you get to like mm-hmm. feel the afterburner go and stuff. Oh, that's cool. And so I, I told Ab, I was like, I know we've made it because, you know, take your spouse or student you know, together to work day involved, like ejection seat training.
1: <laughs> but, that's yeah. pretty epic. Yeah, cause that they have to actually kind of go through like a little lesson on that just for absolute worst case scenario.
0: Oh, yeah, 100%. Uh, they had to, because, uh, I mean, they're strapping into the jet. So, yeah, yeah, they had to go through the full training. Yeah, pretty cool.
1: Are there any circumstances th- that you've heard of of a private citizen getting to ride in one of these planes? Like, you know, actually fly?
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, you hear about them uh, from time to time. I'd have to check my exact facts as far as, like, didn't Chuck Yeager, speaking of which, like, who recently...
1: Yeah, R.I.P.
0: Yeah, I think he he got to fly in one when he was, like, 80-something or <laughs> yeah. maybe even older.
1: I saw some photos of that. Yeah,
0: yeah. I think that might have been a, a C model or something, but they they do. Another the thing is, like, combat photographers. So, oh, they... yeah. That can be a thing. And then also, uh, our maintainers. Uh, there's a really close relationship between like air crew and actual people that work on the aircraft were one squadron. And so, you know, everybody, you know, their names, you know, their family stories. A lot of the times and you get really close with the crew chief on like your jet or the ones that you see a lot. And so sometimes they do incentive flights. So they will actually get to go
1: up. I was going to ask. Yeah. So that's really cool. So you get to take them for a little spin.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: Pull a couple of G's or something. I don't know.
0: More than a couple.
1: Yeah. Ah.
0: A lot of, a lot of good time. A lot of, a lot of puking.
1: What's the? Oh, <laughs> I, I like that. Puking is synonymous with a good time. How many G's can you pull in that plane?
0: It's up to nine G's.
1: Holy crap!
0: It wouldn't be like a an F sixteen or something else like that, where it's more like sustained. Uh, with the Strike Eagle, it's definitely like battle hardened, like workhorse. Mm-hmm. Especially with the air to ground and just like how much it weighs and what it can do, it's not like a sustained more BFM machine, but yeah, you can pull nine. It pulls a lot. It's a good job. Wow.
1: That's crazy. Have you pulled that many?
0: No. Uh, well, yeah, pretty close.
1: Uh, 8.9. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Generally, no. It's a little bit lower than that.
1: Okay. How about the f- the fastest you've ever flown? In training or, or on deployment, I guess?
0: Oh, geez. Uh, well over the mock. But
1: well, I flew my ground speed was over 700 miles per hour in a triple seven one. So I'm not very impressed.
0: See, crushing it. My, <laughs> my cousin flies for Delta. And yeah, he took a picture of that once. He was like, you see this? He's up at like, because, yeah, the higher you go, uh, your ground speed can get really good.
1: Yeah, with a nice uh, tailwind.
0: Yeah, exactly. Just crushing it.
1: <laughs> but obviously those commercial planes, they don't uh, pull off a lot of the cool shit that you guys do like. Like aerial refueling. Can you explain that process a little bit? I know when we talked earlier, you said you've got tankers quote-unquote lined up along a a long route and what's it like to kind of rendezvous with them and then once you're kind of within the realm of actually connecting like what's the process of making that happen without crashing?
0: The first time you do it, you're pretty uh, I would say concerned.
1: (laughs) 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 No shit.
0: (laughs) You don't really know what to expect. The bottom line is that they're pretty big, kind of like a commercial airliner size. Uh, and they do drag. So like if you want to get somewhere that's really far away, you'll basically fly next to a tanker. And kind of like I was talking about of going through the weather on my buddy's wing, we would do the same thing with a tanker. So you could have mm. multiple jets like stacked on the wings flying, which
1: is they're kind of pulling you along.
0: Yeah, it's super cool. They're Whoa. just making sure you have enough fuel to go through the, the weather. Same deal. But the kind of bottom line, too, is that you can have one tanker and then join another or however it works. But you join onto their wing or immediately kind of underneath to get fuel. You basically fly up and then there are lights underneath that kind of help guide you. So the more okay. you do it, you get different like visual references or learn to use some of your like uh, mirrors or whatever. And then
1: <laughs> review mirror
0: night. Yeah, exactly. Uh, night gives a whole nother element of that. Oh. You basically go up, you get in a pre-contact position, move forward, and then they try to plug you.
1: That sounds yeah. so crazy, man.
0: Yeah. And then you just kind of hang on uh, for however long, staying within that kind of envelope.
1: Yeah. Maybe this is getting into some confidential information, but, I, and I know you can't say where you were stationed, but do you ever get to go off base?
0: Yeah. Depending on where you're at, obviously covid Probably creates its own restrictions everywhere. But depending on where you're at, yeah, you can have definitely have the opportunity, depending on where people are, to like go off base or see sites. Mm -hmm. But I would say that between my like education and the military and everything else, I wouldn't put a deployment as like. At least, from my personal experience, is like a huge cultural immersion. <laughs> like uh, you're, you're, because you're working yeah. there. Generally, there's no such thing as a weekend, and you're gone right. for however many months.
1: Yeah, that's well, that's well said. I asked you in in our last conversation about scrambling the jets, and you explained that's life's not really like that when you're deployed, and which I which I understand now. But what do you think most people and particularly, you know, like taxpayers in general who are funding this kind of directly or indirectly don't understand about what deployed life is like for you?
0: Kind of the bottom line in that one of the things I'm most proud of uh, is that, you know, the U.S. military and our people that are, you know, all over the world is that no matter where we put people in harm's way, like we will protect them, not only on the ground, but in the air. And so mm-hmm. that's, that's one of those, like, primary things not only for the air force but also like our platform specifically as uh an air to ground uh and air to air like platform and where we do really well is just you know the length of time our aircraft is able to stay airborne and what we can carry as far as you know bombs and missiles i think mm-hmm. puts the strike eagle in a really important role mm-hmm. where for close air support like if someone's shooting at our guys we're, we're able to protect them no matter where they are or what they're facing.
1: Mm -hmm. Kind of moving on from, um, deployed stories. You mentioned the pond crossings. You can be as careful as you want, but obviously over the course of a, of a flying career, like there's going to be close calls. There's going to be issues. And, um, have you had any that, that you can speak of?
0: Yeah. I mean, obviously you, uh, you train for them all the time. One of the ones I had was, yeah, during a pond crossing, it's like just getting dark. We're about ready to go through the weather for an airfield that I've never landed at before. Hmm. Weather almost down to minimums and like low on fuel after hitting the tanker for the last time.
1: When you say minimums, you mean like visibility?
0: Yeah, or in this case, like ceiling. Okay. Oh, whoa. I had a problem when we were just starting to go through the weather, go down to land. I got a warning for a hydraulic malfunction that basically took away uh, some of your some of your systems so Mm -hmm. this one impacted the brakes so I don't know if many people know this but Navy aircraft when they land they generally take a cable Mm -hmm. with the hook but U.S. Air Force aircraft will have that too in order to take a cable uh, just in case they have a brake issue or otherwise.
1: Wow so you you're able to bring it in and you caught the cable and like that must have been a huge relief.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Always good when the, uh, you know, because you just go through so much training on that. And when it does happen, and it's nice to be like cool, calm, collected, and yeah. have seen that kind of stuff before, which I think translates.
1: Of course. I mean, obviously, that's why you train so much. But I mean, what's going through your head the last 10 seconds or so before you're <laughs> down? I hope this works. <laughs> yeah. A <laughs> uh, way to put it bluntly. What does it feel like to cross back into, let's say, U.S. airspace, uh, like after after a deployment?
0: Yeah, I remember the first time I saw the ground back in the states. I would say bigger one is like Europe, but yeah, the first thing I thought was like, "Wow, this is really green." (laughs) It is definitely like a really cool feeling and Mm -hmm. different, especially when you're going out and Mm -hmm. then you're coming back.
1: Is it a feeling of? relief is it uh does anxiety fade away what is the feeling or maybe you're so focused on your task you don't really reflect on that until later
0: i think part of that gets bottled up You probably think about it later on but i think it's just uh really looking forward to getting back with the family seeing those people and getting back into the normal normal life i Mm. remember uh because for all those months, your your habit patterns and your social interactions are obviously different. Mm-hmm. For instance, like eating with plastic silverware your entire time. <laughs> so I, I right. remember like yeah. one of my, my weirdest things is I was like, oh, like I have to eat properly and interact with me. <laughs> Like <laughs> what's that going to be like back in society? That might right. just be me. You have like different things that come with that.
1: Yeah. But once you're back stateside and I know – we talked about this earlier, you know, you, you have been able to travel for pleasure quite a bit as well. One of my biggest pet peeves is when people clap when they land. And I just wonder when you hear that you must be thinking, all right, Karen, I'm used to getting shot at. You can handle some turbulence when we're coming in. I mean, does that drive you nuts?
0: (laughs) Oh yeah. Yeah. There, there are a lot of those little things. What do you think that stems from? Like fear of flying or
1: something? I kind of go back and forth on this one. I do. And I've asked a number of people who've been on the podcast, like how they feel about that. It drives me nuts because my thing is like, well, what did you think was going to happen? Especially if there hasn't been a lot of turbulence and people just clap because they're on the ground. I mean, you bought the ticket. I I would assume for most people, it stems from a fear of flying, but, and military aviation is a little different, but commercial aviation just so safe. Uh, on 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 a relative numbers basis, that um, I was just think that that behavior is a bit strange.
0: Oh yeah, yeah, I'm sure you've talked about it in other podcasts. The danger is not in flying, right? I have to say, like, I have a pretty big drive to and from work, and I'm positive that that is way more dangerous than anything at work. And then the funny part about we are talking about with turbulence is if anybody that. Uh, Is kind of worried about those big aircraft. If you fly in a little aircraft, like a Cessna one seventy two or uh, some of the smaller ones, yeah, I, I took my mother up in one of those. Uh, I flew from uh, hmm. Aurora, Aurora, Oregon, from anybody from around there, and we flew mm-hmm. out to Tillamook and going over the mountains. That we just like bounced. That was like way worse. And uh, I I think it's kind of fun. <laughs>
1: yeah to be honest I don't mind it at all and I, I can get some enjoyment out of it too I guess I've never been in what would be considered severe turbulence which is not not even that dramatic right and I think they from what I've read like a lot of pilots will go their whole career without experiencing quote-unquote severe turbulence but yeah I always find it funny what impact has travel had on you and what impact do you believe it has on the world so travels opened my mind and made me question
0: things which I think is is huge no matter your position, but also even in the military of just knowing that there's a lot of gray in the world. As far as what's right, what's wrong, and how to appraise other people uh, and other cultures and also just live in it. I think the world in the end is a relatively small place with a huge amount of commonalities and those judgments or biases that we have as we go forward definitely need to be challenged and look at those common values and ideals and also like recognize the diversity that is across the world and how cool that is.
1: That's Peter Lind. You can find him on Instagram at Boone underscore Lind. And next time you're worried about some turbulence on your next flight, remember that Peter, who routinely flies planes while being shot at, believes driving his car to work is still more dangerous. If you enjoyed the show, it would mean a lot if you'd leave a review or share it with someone who might find it interesting. This actually helps me out a lot. Feel free to reach out to me on social with any questions or comments about the show. Once again, I'm your host, Ian O'Grimus, wishing you smooth travels. Peace.